Blog Talk Radio. Cowboy Mike, we have got a loaded show for you this evening. A lot going on in the world of sports today, so let's get right into it. The number one story going on right now is college football playoff rankings. Uh, They came out this evening, and uh, before we get into them a little bit, I just want to get into a little bit of breaking news. This just happened a few minutes ago while I was prepping for the show. I turned over to the TV, and Mark Helfrich at Oregon has been fired. Um, not a huge shock. The Ducks went four and eight this year. Really bad year. Not going to be bowl eligible. Um, big buyout there. Twelve million dollar buyout for Mark Helfrich. Um, obviously, Oregon is supported by Phil Knight and Nike, so the money's not a huge issue there. But it's—I mean—that's an enormous amount of money to pay a guy not to coach your team, who two years ago was was coaching for a national championship. Um, where do the Ducks go from here is the question. Obviously, everyone is turning their eyes towards San Francisco and seeing what Chip Kelly is thinking. I get it. I understand it. He was wildly successful at Oregon. His his system works so much better in college than it does in the NFL. It makes all the sense in the world. You know they could pay the money to get him there. I'm sure that there's going to be some uh, reaching out to Chip Kelly and his people to see any sort of interest if it's there. I, I just don't see it. I think Chip Kelly, the guy strikes me as a little bit of an ego guy, and I, I don't think that he wants to go out on potentially a 1-15 in season and have that be his NFL legacy. I'll be honest, if I was Chip Kelly, I'd go back to Oregon in a heartbeat because it's not going to work in the NFL. It just isn't going to work for him. I think that his system, his style of play – his demeanor is suited much better to college than it is to pro athletes. Uh, I think it would be a good move for him, but I don't see that happening. After him, you know, maybe Texas A&M lets Kevin Sumlin go. Maybe. I, I don't see that happening either if I'm them. I mean, who are you getting that's really going to be uh, an improvement over Kevin Sumlin? I, I don't I don't know that that's going to happen. Les Miles doesn't strike me as an Oregon kind of guy. I don't think they can go in-house with Scott Frost, their offensive coordinator, even though I think he's, he's a pretty good coach. They need a name there. They need to move and get themselves someone big. I, I'm going to say a name that a lot of people are probably going to laugh at, but a guy that I actually think would succeed in Oregon and I think would take the job in a heartbeat, Lane Kiffin. I, I know the knocks on Lane Kiffin. I know, I know. I, I've heard it all. I've read it all. You know, he, he, he wasn't successful in Oakland. He blasted Al Davis on the way out the door. He left Tennessee in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness to go to USC where he didn't really succeed there either, although I would argue that he, he did a very good job recruiting there, and if he had more time, I think he would have done well. I, I think Lane Kiffin's a good coach in Oregon. I, I think he works in the Pac-12. I think that's his style of play, that spread offense. He's a sexy name. He's a young guy with a lot of energy, and he always recruits well. 
I think Lane Kiffin could really work up in Eugene uh, and bring the Ducks back to some level of competition because it's going to be hard for them. I mean, people forget that the Pac-12 was, was down for a while. I mean, USC was in doldrums after Pete Carroll left. Um, Washington was no good. Stanford's always competitive, but they play a very, very different style than Oregon plays. So it's going to be hard to recruit, and I think Lane Kiffin does that really well. So if I'm the Ducks, I'm picking the phone up and making a call down to Tuscaloosa and uh, seeing if, if Lane might be interested in moving to the Pacific Northwest. Let's get into the rankings a little bit because these are the second-to-last rankings here. Um, they're important, obviously. Championship Saturday is coming up this weekend, which is going to change a lot of things. But this gives us kind of a, a blueprint for where the committee is thinking right now. Top four. Number one is obviously Alabama. Number two is obviously Ohio State. I don't think you're going to get argument from anybody in the country that those right now look like the two best teams in football. Uh, if you think anyone else is one or two, quite frankly, you're just not paying very much attention to the games on Saturday. They have Clemson at number three. I understand why they're number three. They're a one-loss team in the ACC. They played for the national title last year. I, I understand it. I'm not, I don't have a huge problem with it. I just think Clemson's an overrated football team. I, I think that Clemson has been walking a tightrope all season long. They fell off once against Pitt, and I don't think they're a team that's going to make a ton of noise in a playoff. Number four is Washington. Uh, Washington lost the one game to USC at home. It was a bad loss because USC uh, dominated that game from start to finish. But USC is playing right now like one of the hottest teams in football, and they have for the last six or seven weeks. Um, so Washington right now headed to the Pac-12 title game in Santa Clara on Friday is number four in the country. I don't have a problem there. I think Washington's a good football team. I, I like them in the top four. Number five is Michigan. Number six is Wisconsin. Number seven is Penn State. That whole situation is going to be messy. It's going to be really, really messy, and I'm going to be very interested to see uh, how they sort this whole thing out with the Big Ten because the committee obviously values the Big Ten above any other conference this year, and with good reason. It's been the best conference in football this year. It, it, you can't argue for the SEC because the SEC East is a JV division at best. Don't talk to me about Florida this weekend. I, I don't even want to hear it. I'm going to watch the game, but – Alabama's going to win that game by 30. Florida's a fraud. That is a bad division. So I understand why they like the Big Ten as much as they do. But you've got Wisconsin and Penn State playing for the Big Ten title. What do you do with the Big Ten champion? You're going to have one of those two teams with multiple losses winning the Big Ten. Michigan beat both of those teams. Michigan also beat number eight, Colorado. What do you do with Michigan? What do you do with Michigan if Clemson or Washington lose? Because if Clemson or Washington lose, I don't see how they can make the playoff. Not with the teams behind them. If Clemson loses and it's Virginia Tech, are you putting Michigan in? Are, or are you putting in the Big Ten champion with the same amount of losses as Michigan, but Michigan beat them head-to-head? -head? And those are, those are criteria that the committee look at. If you look at what they have listed as their criteria, head-to-head -head is one of those things. Michigan beat Penn State badly. They didn't beat Wisconsin that badly, but they still won the football game. So how do you justify putting them in because they beat a lower-ranked team ahead of Michigan who would have three top-ten victories 
and will have beaten that Big Ten champion. It's going to be very, very interesting to see what they do. Very interesting. Like we said, number eight is Colorado, and number nine are the two teams in the Bedlam game on Saturday, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. Washington is going to be playing in the Pac-12 title game on Colorado. And if you think that this game is a cakewalk for the Huskies, you have not watched the Buffaloes play this year. Because the Buffaloes have very, very quietly played like one of the best teams in football. Their two losses this season came in Ann Arbor, where they held a lead in the third quarter on the Wolverines. And they're the only team other than Iowa and Ohio State to really push that team at all. And USC in Los Angeles. And USC, like we just talked about, with Sam Darnold, at quarterback, has been one of the hottest teams in the country over the last two months. Colorado does everything well. Sefo Lufau doesn't make a lot of mistakes. They convert third downs at a very high rate. They can run the ball when they need to. They have very, very talented receivers. Their defense plays well enough to stop people when they need to. Mike McIntyre has that team hitting on all cylinders. And quite frankly, if he doesn't win the Coach of the Year award nationally, then they really just shouldn't hand the damn thing out because I don't know anybody back in September that would have said the Colorado Buffaloes would be playing for the Pac-12 title. Mike McIntyre's got them there. They're in a position where I think they very easily could win this football game and upend a lot of things here. Uh, so keep an eye on Buffaloes. I don't have a real big problem with these rankings. I, I just the, – the Clemson thing bothers me because I just don't buy Clemson as one of those top four teams. If you're asking me today who I'm putting in, I'm going to go with Alabama. I'm going to go with Ohio State, Washington, and Michigan because I still think Michigan is one of those top four teams. And I also don't think just because you happen to win your conference through happenstance, which let's be honest here, people, if Penn State wins the Big Ten championship – it's dumb luck. If you really think that that's one of the top four teams in America, I, I don't know what to tell you. This conversation is moot because they're, they're just not. They're simply not. Michigan blasted them. They got lucky one night with Ohio State. They were up for that game. It was a primetime game in Happy Valley. And I give them credit for it. They played a great game. But if you think that they can hang with Alabama or Ohio State a second time on a neutral field – or even a Washington or a Clemson or a Michigan, they can't. They can't do it. That team does not belong in that picture. In my mind, I, I'm excluding them. Plain and simple. I don't care if they win the Big Ten title. I kind of hope they do because it makes the decision easier because I think Wisconsin is a good football team and I have a harder time keeping them out if they're a Big Ten champion. So we'll have to see what happens. This weekend is going to be a great weekend of college football um, you know, they, they always the, – the, the line that we always tell ourselves is it, it always works itself out. There is a very distinct possibility this year that it may not work itself out. And I'm kind of hoping that it doesn't because chaos is fun when it comes to these kinds of things. And um, I think it would be really, really interesting to, to debate this. So that's what we have on the college football rankings that came out today. Let's, uh, let's give you a little no bull. <laughs> Michigan-Ohio State game this past Saturday might have been the game of the year. Um, 
I've watched a lot of college football this year, and I don't think I saw a game that was harder fought, that had more big plays on it on both sides. Um, I, I mean, just tense, really, really high-pressure moments throughout the game. Every time those teams were in the red zone, it felt like it, the game hinged on what happened there. Um, and you got overtime out of it. Having said that, as great as that football game was, the way it ended was was awful. Um, the officiating was terrible. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm not a Michigan fan. I'm not an Ohio State fan. But the officiating was terrible at the end of that football game. That spot in double overtime on the fourth down play where Barrett runs it up the middle, he didn't get it. He didn't get the first down. They made the call so fast on the field that he got the first down that you're sitting there and you're just wondering, what are they thinking? What the hell are these guys thinking making this call so fast? How do you not spot it and measure it, talk to each other for a second? I mean, you see officials conference about every issue now that goes on during a football game, but in this critical moment that essentially decided this game, they were making snap judgments. And then they reviewed it, and they still couldn't get it right. They were still wrong about it. And I, I, I just don't, I don't understand it. Jim Harbaugh didn't understand it either. And this was Jim Harbaugh in his post-game press conference. I thought we were, I thought we were doing a heck of a job. They got a gift interference call. A gift. The ball was uncatchable. Passed the receiver when, uh, when our guy made Delano Hill made contact. And then, you know, fast forward to overtime, second overtime, Grant Perry is getting hooked, turns before the ball gets there. I think that really benefited in that, that gift interference penalty. Did you feel more like you lost this game or had it taken from you? What do you think? That's what I think. As I said, bitterly disappointed in the officiating. So concerned about and that uh, could have been watching the game rather than concerned about uh, throwing a throwing a throwing a hat where you could throw a hat, throw a throw your script towards the sideline, that's a that's penalty. That is not you said. Well it is in basketball. Okay, well it's in basketball. Well, he told me that he officiates basketball. I don't know the relevance. So it would have been technical in basketball. <coughs> Jim Harbaugh brought up three really important plays there. In the fourth quarter, a pass interference call was called on Michigan. Um, I think he's right there. I think that the ball wasn't catchable. It was clearly wide and clearly high of the receiver, and they called a pass interference call. That was a huge turning point. And then in overtime, the two calls he mentioned, again, I I, I agree with him. And I I understand there's a lot of things that you can take issue with Jim Harbaugh on, but – the missed call earlier um, when, in the overtime when uh, clearly there was a lot of pushing and shoving uh, on the Michigan receiver, and they didn't call that. I didn't understand that. I thought at the time the flag's coming out, you kept waiting and waiting, and it just didn't come. Um, and then obviously the fourth down play. The fourth down play, though, is, is, is the one that sticks in your craw if you're a Michigan fan because it looked so clear. And it wasn't just one angle. It was every angle you saw. You know, it, he, he 
he looked like he might have touched the line at one point, but then he got pushed back, and the whistle didn't blow to stop forward progress. They pushed him back, and I don't see how you make the spot where you make the spot. It, it just is a terrible, terrible call. And then Harbaugh comes out and says that when he got the penalty for unsportsmanlike conduct for throwing his play sheet, the referee tells him, well, it would have been a technical in basketball, and I call basketball games. What the hell does that have to do with this game? I mean, this is arguably the most important game of the season up to this point. This was a bitterly hard-fought rivalry game that was an incredible football game played by everyone involved. And you're throwing a flag because Harbaugh throws his play sheet? I could understand if he threw it out onto the field. He didn't. He threw it behind him over his head. Who cares? It's emotion. You want people to be robots. People have emotion in these situations, and that's what Jim Harbaugh showed. And unfortunately for him, he got a flag for it, and it ultimately it, it cost that team. It cost that team most likely a shot at the playoff. And you know the, those seniors and those guys who went through some tough times with with uh, Brady Hoke and <laughs> you know the the lean years. Unfortunately, this may be the way that they go out because I, I don't know that Michigan's getting getting another shot at it. When you have a game with those implications, that rivalry, a game that's that hard fought, you can't let it be decided by referees. It's got to be decided on the field by what happens. And unfortunately, this game was not. If you're a referee, you have one job and one job only. Get it right. These guys didn't. And unfortunately, Michigan is the one that suffered for that. Time to do a three-point play. Our first part of the three-point play for you is the Kansas City Chiefs. If you didn't watch that game on Sunday night between the Chiefs and the Broncos in Denver, you missed most likely the most entertaining NFL game of the year. I shouldn't say most entertaining. It was probably the best NFL game of the year because the the game between Dallas and Pittsburgh where they were just scoring points left and right was, was great entertainment. But these two teams played unbelievable defense. I, I mean, normally when you say a game is a defensive battle, that implies to a lot of people that it's boring. And this game was anything but. You had two of the best defensive football players in the world, maybe the best two, on the field at the same time, executing at incredibly high levels in Von Miller and Justin Houston. The Chiefs' defense is, I think, underrated. People talk about the Broncos a lot because they have Von Miller, because they have Aqib Tlaib, because they've won a Super Bowl, they have all these guys. The Chiefs' defense is number one in the league in takeaways, they play an unbelievably hard brand of defense. The hits in that game were some of the hardest hits you'll see on a football field. Justin Houston, like we just mentioned, was spectacular. Ten tackles, three sacks, and a fumble recovery after missing the first ten weeks of the season. This was his second game back and really his first full game back on the road, in Denver, in prime time. An unbelievable performance by Justin Houston. 
He looked every bit as good as Von Miller when he's healthy. The way that guy just dismissed the Denver tackles was something that you just don't see. He went through three of them on the night. Three of them. Alex Smith and Andy Reid are the definition of vanilla. And, and I say that in a, in a good way. They're boring. They're boring. Andy Reid's teams are never electrifying teams. They don't go out generally and put 40 points on the board a week. He runs a West Coast offense. It's a lot of short passing, move the ball, field position, play really good defense. That's how Andy Reid coaches. And Alex Smith is the perfect quarterback for his system because that's where he's best. People are always knocking Alex Smith because he doesn't throw the ball to the wide receivers a lot. He doesn't throw the ball downfield a lot. Alex Smith has won more games than all but two quarterbacks since 2011. The guy wins. He wins because he doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't turn the ball over. He doesn't throw careless interceptions. Alex Smith is the quarterback that can win you a Super Bowl. And I know people are going to hear that and say you're out of your mind, but it's the truth. If you have a great defense and you have solid skill players and a good offensive line, Alex Smith can win you a Super Bowl because he's not going to lose you playoff games. Look at what the Broncos did last year in the playoffs with Peyton Manning. You're going to tell me right now you wouldn't take Alex Smith over that version of Peyton Manning? You are outside of your mind if you think that. Alex Smith is an infinitely better quarterback than Peyton Manning was last season. The Chiefs went into Denver in a game that one of those teams, both of those teams, had to have. They were tied at 7-3 and three in second place. One of them was going to move within one game of the Raiders, and the other was going to fall two back with five to play. And the Chiefs squeaked out a 30-27 to 27 win in overtime on the last possible play of overtime as time expired with this play called by Mike Tirico and Chris Collinsworth at NBC. I mean, just an unbelievable game. Unbelievable game. And I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this about this game too. In overtime, right before this game-winning kick, Gary Kubiak attempted a 62-yard field goal, um, and obviously they missed and would have won the game if they made it. It was a fourth-down play. I heard Tariko and Collinsworth talking about how you know maybe he should punt the ball and make the Chiefs go the whole field. Maybe he should uh, go for it on fourth down. I think Kubiak made the right call. Look, you're, you're in Denver. Kicking is easier there than it is anywhere else in the league. Your kicker has said that he's good from 60. This is 62. You've you got to take a shot to win the game. Okay, A tie doesn't do you a hell of a lot of good. You need to try to win this game. And, and I applaud him for having the fortitude to trust his kicker, send him out there, and try to do it. And McManus had the leg. It was inaccurate. I think he just booted the hell out of it, and it went wide left. But I like what Kubiak did there. I'm, I'm not going to knock him at all for that. Uh, but back to the Chiefs. The Chiefs now sit a game back of Oakland. They're 8-3. and three. They're in real solid playoff position, uh, either for the division or a wild card. They have a tough schedule left. They have to play – at Atlanta, they get Oakland, Tennessee, Denver, and San Diego. 
That is not an easy slate of games. I still think they're going to be there at the end. I think that the Chiefs definitely can get two wins out of that schedule, and I think they probably get three. Um, I think they're going to beat Kansas. I think they're going to beat Tennessee. I think they're going to beat San Diego, and then I think they get one out of Oakland and Atlanta. I'm not sure which one, but I think they get one of those, uh, and I think they get to 11 and five. And they're in the playoffs. And I'm going to tell you right now, you do not want to play the Kansas City Chiefs in the playoffs because that team is dangerous if they are healthy. And this kid, Tyreek Hill, that they had, man, that kid can play. He is big and fast. He's not a Darren Sproles, a little guy who, who, you know, scampers around. This kid is big. He returned a punt for a touchdown. He caught a touchdown to send the game to overtime. And he ran a touchdown in. I, I mean, the, the guy played unbelievable football. The Chiefs, I think this is the best Chiefs team they've had with Andy Reid there. Um, I, I would be very relieved of them come playoff time. Second part of our three-point play for you is the Detroit Lions. The Detroit Lions are very, very quietly playing excellent football. They have won six out of their last seven. They lead the NFC North with a record of seven and four. Um, they won on Thanksgiving against Minnesota in a game where they actually won the game on a defensive uh, play. Uh, Darius Slay with an interception late in the fourth quarter set up the field goal to win the game. Matt Stafford having the best year of his career, and very few people are talking about it. Stafford has thrown for almost 2,900 yards. He's getting 67% of his passes and has 19 touchdowns to five picks through 11 games. He has limited his mistakes. The knock on Matt Stafford used to be, yeah, he'll throw for 4,500 yards and he'll throw, you know, 25 touchdowns, but he's going to get picked off 20 times. Well, that's not what's happening now. And I think you can point a lot of that to the fact that Alvin Johnson's not there. And, And that's something that nobody thought we'd be saying at this point in the NFL season. But I think when when Calvin Johnson was there, Stafford had the mindset of we're just going to throw the ball up in that direction of the field, and he's going to make a play, and that's what we're going to do. We've got to force the ball to him because he's the best athlete on the field every time we go out. And with him not there, Stafford has spread the ball around. He's getting all of his receivers involved. Marvin Jones has played a big part. Um, Golden Tate has played a big part. And what's really impressive to me is they're doing this without a running game. They don't run the ball well. They are really, really not a good running football team. But when you look at what they've accomplished with no running game, a defense that's good, not great, but a good defense, it's incredibly impressive what the Lions have done. I think they started the year one and three, and they've come all the way back now to 7-4. and four. They're in complete control of that division. The Lions are going to be a playoff team this year, and they're one of those teams that could get a win or two in the playoffs because they can move the ball, they can score points, and they play just enough defense that I wouldn't want to have to play them. You know, if, if I'm the Giants or... Uh, the Redskins, I would not want to have to go into Detroit and play that game because 
I, I think Detroit has a really good chance to win it. And I'll say this. They're doing it in my mind in spite of their head coach because uh, Jim Caldwell, I can barely tell if he's alive on the sideline. The guy shows no emotion. I, I can't imagine he's much of a motivator in a locker room. He might be great with X's and O's, but there's more to that job as a head coach in the NFL than just being an X and O guy because you could be a coordinator and be a really good X and O guy, but they hire you to be a head coach because you have to have something extra. And I think Jim Caldwell is completely devoid of that something extra. So I get a lot of credit to Matt Stafford for where this team is at. Uh, their offensive coordinator, Jim Bob Cooter, also the best name in football, bar none, Jim Bob Cooter. Um, He's done a hell of a job at that offense since he took over last year. And that guy that guy probably deserves some consideration for a head coach. I think his name may be an impediment because who is going to hire Jim Bob Cooter? But um, he sounds like a guy in West Virginia who makes, makes whiskey in his bathtub. But he has done a great job, and he should be in consideration. The Lions have put themselves in great position to win that division. I think they will win it. They'll get in the playoffs. And I think the Lions can make some noise there. Our last part of the three-point play is the Arizona Cardinals. The Cardinals lost this Sunday in Atlanta. They are 4-6-1 and one at this point, And it's safe to say that their season is over. They have four wins. Three of those wins have come over the New York Jets and two wins over the 49ers. They have managed to beat two of the worst five teams in football, if I'm being generous to the Jets. Three times. Carson Palmer has to go after this year. I, I don't see any way you can bring that guy back. Um, he's completing 60% of his passes, which is – it's not great. He has 13 touchdowns uh, – 15 touchdowns, excuse me, to 11 interceptions. His passer rating is 83.3. That is the worst of his career since 2011, which was his first year in Oakland. He turns 37 years old this month. It's time to cut the cord with Carson Palmer in Arizona. When he didn't get it done in the NFC Championship game last year, and you combine that with what he's doing this year with a ton of talent around him. I mean, a ton of talent. He's got Larry Fitzgerald. He's got John Brown. He's got David Johnson. That defense has playmakers on it. Their coach is Bruce Arians, who is the opposite of Jim Caldwell. Palmer's the problem. He's a big part of the problem, and he's got to go after this year. Because David Johnson's a pro bowler. That guy is a very, very talented running back. He's got 921 yards and 10 touchdowns through 11 games. That kid can play. We knew it last year, and we know it even more this year. Larry Fitzgerald somebody needs to talk to Larry Fitzgerald and find out where the fountain of youth is because that guy found it. He is 33 years old, and he's got 78 catches for 802 yards and five touchdowns. The guy just doesn't slow down. he's, He's a freak. He doesn't slow down at all. He doesn't lose a step. And it would be a real shame if that guy went his whole career without winning a Super Bowl because anytime you talk to anyone who covers the NFL, or is is uh, involved in the league. I'll tell you the same thing. Larry Fitzgerald is one of the best people in football. He's one of the real good guys. And for him to not get a, a real chance to win a Super Bowl would be a shame. So you have to ask yourself, if you're the Arizona Cardinals, 
where do you go from here? Because Bruce Arians isn't completely happy with the way people have played this season. This was him after reviewing the tape of the game against the Falcons on Sunday. How about defensively, we had some guys uh, get out of their lane again and try to do too much, try to get on the stat sheet instead of just doing their job. Trying to get on the stat sheet instead of doing their job. That happens sometimes when you're on a losing team. Guys start to worry about themselves instead of the team. It shouldn't happen on a really good team, and this is a really good team. Where do you go from here? How do you fix the problem? For me, it's easy, and it's a perfect fit. Tony Romo. And people might be rolling their eyes and saying, oh, how are you going to bring Tony in? He can't stay healthy. The Cardinals have a good offensive line. They have a good running game. They have talent at wide receiver like few teams in the league. They play really good defense, and they have a great head coach that players love to play for who happens to be one of the best quarterback teachers in the NFL, in Bruce Arians. It's it's easy to forget because he's been a head coach in Arizona now, and we all associate him with the Cardinals and the Kango hats, and he filled in for Chuck Pagano the year in Indy. Bruce Arians was an offensive coordinator for years and years and years in this league, and he was a very good one. If you put Tony Romo in that system, basically having a year off to get his body right. Tony Romo is going to be exceptionally successful in Arizona. It's a perfect fit for him. It's a perfect fit for the Cardinals. Everything works with that scenario. And it gives the Cardinals the opportunity to take a look in the draft and see if maybe there's a young quarterback that they like. Maybe a little later in the draft, they can take him, they can develop him for a few years. Romo's proven this year he's an excellent teammate. He's a good guy to have in the locker room. He's not – I don't think he'd be opposed to helping a young kid come along who he knows is going to be a few years down the road. I think that that is a fantastic situation for both the Arizona Cardinals and for Tony Romo because they're still a very, very well-run organization. Bruce Arians a great coach. Steve Kimes a really good GM. They put pieces in place to win every year. So I think that that is a win for both sides of the equation, and it gets the Cardinals right back into contention next year. All right, everybody, it's time to administer the death penalty. This week, our death penalty goes to the New York Jets. The Jets are bad. They're very bad. They lose seemingly every week, games that they should win, could win. This is the life of the Jets and their fans for years and years and years. It's a never-ending cycle. They've been in this position for 17 years, people. Bill Parcells left that team in 1999 with a 29-19 record. They made the playoffs. They were in an AFC championship game. People thought the Jets were back, and then Parcells left. And since then, since 1999, there is one coach with a winning record for the New York Jets, 
And if I gave you four guesses, you probably wouldn't get it. It's Al Groh. Al Groh coached one season in New York in 2000. He went 9-7. and seven. He's the only coach with a winning record in New York. And they haven't had awful coaches there either. They went from Al Groh to Herman Edwards to Eric Mangini to Rex Ryan and now Todd Bowles. And there are some knocks on each one of those guys. But Herman Edwards wasn't a bad coach. Guy was a great motivator. Uh, I, I think that, you know, Herman Edwards can coach football. I think he, he did a good job in Kansas City. Not great, but he was a decent coach. I think Eric Mangini was an underrated coach. I think the Jets gave him a mess to work with. This Chad Pennington and Brett Favre disasters that they were. I think Eric Mangini is actually a bright guy. Um, Rex Ryan can coach he can coach football. I, you, can, you may not like his personality. You may not like the bombast that comes with Rex. But Rex Ryan is a good football coach. He may need the right staff around him, particularly on the offensive side of the ball, to be really successful. But Rex Ryan took that team to two AFC championship games in a row with Mark Sanchez as their quarterback. Think about how ridiculous that sounds today with where Mark Sanchez's career is. Rex Ryan took that team in his first two seasons to back-to-back AFC title games with Mark Sanchez. Just let that soak in for a minute. And now you got Todd Bowles. And Todd Bowles is, is, is a decent coach. I, I, he's okay. He wouldn't be my choice. He's a little vanilla, but he's all right. It's not the coaches. Look at this Jets team now. Look at the way they've been for the last four or five years. They have great lines. When you talk to a guy like a Bill Polian, who knows how to build a championship team better than almost anybody alive, he'll always tell you the same thing. You build from the inside out. You build from the lines out. The Jets have very, very good lines. They've had guys like Nick Mangold, DeBrickashaw Ferguson on the offensive line, on the defensive line. It's it, it, They seem to have a murder row of players that just step in and have unbelievable years. They've had good secondaries. They had Darrell Rivas when he was in his prime. They had Antonio Cromartie when he was still able to play really well. They had those two guys together. They have a wide receiver now. Look at their skill players now. Eric Decker, Brandon Marshall. Uh, they have Matt Forte. They have talent since the year 2000, I'm going to name you the quarterbacks who have started games for the New York Jets. Vinny Testaverde, Chad Pennington, Brooks Bollinger started nine games. Brooks Bollinger. Kelly Clemens, Brett Favre, Mark Sanchez, Greg McElroy, Geno Smith, Michael Vick, Ryan Fitzpatrick, and Bryce Petty. There is not one quarterback on that list that you can potentially win a Super Bowl with. There's not a quarterback on that list that you in your wildest dreams could win a Super Bowl with. Somehow, in a span of 17 years, the New York Jets have managed to find zero quarterbacks capable of taking them to a championship, all while surrounding these below-average quarterbacks with a fair amount of talent and good head coaches. It's terrible. You can't win in this league without a quarterback. You don't have to have 
a Tom Brady or a Drew Brees to win a Super Bowl, but you have to have a good quarterback. He needs to be a little above league average for you to have a shot at it. They are awful in this department. The Jets drafted a quarterback last year in the second round, Christian Hackenberg, and they're afraid to play this kid. They took him out of Penn State, and they won't play him. Most of the time, they don't even dress him. What does that tell you about what he looks like in practice? Because if you've seen Ryan Fitzpatrick and Bryce Petty play, the bar isn't very high to quarterback the New York Jets. Ryan Fitzpatrick threw six interceptions in one game and kept his job. Bryce Petty couldn't beat the Rams in a field goal battle. What are they seeing out of Christian Hackenberg that makes them think, we cannot put this guy out there? And they threw a second-round pick out on this kid. The problem with the Jets is the problem you have in a lot of two sports, two team towns. There's one dominant team, and then there's another team that's playing for the back page. The Jets play to win the back pages. They don't play to win the games, which is ironically something they were lectured about by one of their former head coaches. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. You play to win the game. You don't play to generate headlines and win the back page cover over the Giants. That's not how you win. And the Jets are a franchise that has never quite understood that. They never totally rebuild. Most teams in this league reach a point where they have to rebuild. The Jets try to retool on the fly. They try to plug in overpaid veteran players with their own guys that they've brought in and a below-average quarterback. And most years, the Jets are somewhere between 6-10 and 10 and 10-6. 10 and 6. And that's a wide range, but that's kind of the lowest of the low and the highest of the high. And when you live in that neighborhood, you never get out of it. Because in order to truly get that transcendent player, in order to truly go out there and find a guy like a Carson Wentz this year or uh, some of the other guys that have come out in recent seasons, a Mariota, Jameis Winston, you have to be really bad. You have to get the top picks. And the Jets never do that because they know in New York there is nothing worse than an irrelevant team. People don't come. People don't call sports radio shows. They don't buy merchandise for irrelevant teams. The Jets hang around enough, and they'll spend money in the offseason and bring guys in, but they never bring in the one guy that they need, and that's the guy under center. And you watch this offseason. Watch. If Jay Cutler gets released, if Tony Romo gets released, that'll be the, the rumor. The Jets are interested in Romo. The Jets are interested in Cutler. And that is a stereotypical Jets move. They are Band-Aids on your franchise. You don't have the rest of the talent needed for Tony Romo to take you to a Super Bowl. The Cardinals do. The Broncos do. The Texans do. The Jets don't. And bringing in Jay Cutler would be such a Jets move. Because Jay Cutler is obviously not a guy to bring into New York. Brett Favre wasn't a guy to bring into New York. 
He's a kid from Mississippi who played his whole career in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and you brought him into New York with a firestorm around him. That's not a great idea. But the Jets don't learn, and they're going to make the same mistakes. And they're going to fire Todd Bowles, probably not after this year. I think he's bought himself one more. But Todd Bowles is going to start next year on the hottest of hot seats. And they'll fire him, and they'll bring somebody else in, and people say it's a great hire. And it's a cycle that's never ending in New York. It never ends. The Jets need to tear it all down. Trade Decker, trade Marshall, trade whoever the hell you can who's not on one of those lines because you need to keep the linemen in place. Trade it away, get some draft picks, rebuild this thing, and do it right for once because this team should be better than they are. Their fans deserve better. It's it's absurd to me that the Jets are the way they are, and it's been 17 years for this. Find a quarterback. You haven't had one since Joe Namath. And let me tell you something, Joe Namath was overrated, too, if you look at his career stats. But that's a whole other discussion. All right, that's the death penalty for the week. We're going to wrap up today with Thursday's Top Dog. We're going to give you a pick on the Thursday night football game this week. Obviously, Thursday night's color rush football. Super exciting. Love seeing those all white and black uniforms now because most teams are afraid to go full Jaguars and pick a ridiculous color. This is a good game, though. This is a really good game. A lot of Thursday night games aren't worth watching. This one is worth watching, and it's important. It's the Dallas Cowboys at the Minnesota Vikings. Cowboys are in great shape. Um, uh, this game matters less to them, although y- you, can't, you can't underestimate anything in this league because while the Cowboys may be sitting really, really pretty at, at 10-1, and one, the Giants – are right there. They're eight and three. Okay, and they have a game left, and the Giants are the one in the Cowboys ten and one. So and again, the, the Giants are doing this against all odds and against all reason, but they're they're there. The Redskins aren't far behind. It's an important game for the Cowboys. It's a really important game for the Vikings. The Vikings are now behind the Lions. They need to get themselves moving because it's going to be hard to get a wild card if the Giants and the Redskins keep playing the way they're playing in the NFC. The Packers won a game last night. Maybe they're not quite dead yet. The Vikings need to right the ship, and it's been going sideways now for the better part of six weeks. I wanted to pick the Vikings in this game in the worst way. I spent probably... 30 minutes today, trying to find a reason to take Minnesota and the four points. They're at home. Their defense is fantastic. Bradford's good enough, maybe. I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I The defense for Minnesota is great. I get that the game is in Minneapolis. The Cowboys have a ton of weapons on offense. Uh, they have Des Bryant, Jason Witten. Cole Beasley, Ezekiel, I, I just, I, I don't, I, it's too much. It's too much to have to cover. You, you can't defend all of those guys all the time. And Dak Prescott has played a brand of football that is just completely, it completely avoids making costly mistakes. He just doesn't do it. Ezekiel Elliott is unbelievable. As a rookie, I thought he would hit a wall last Thursday on a short week 
on a holiday game against a good Redskins defense. He didn't. Prescott didn't. Between Elliott, Beasley, Witten, Bryant, there's too much there. There's too much there, and the Vikings just can't move the football anymore. I, I love Stephon Diggs. I think Bradford's played well. I think that you got the best version of Bradford you could have hoped for if you're the Vikings. The problem is it still isn't enough because you can't run the ball at all. And other than Stephon Diggs, I mean, Kyle Rudolph's been good. I I like Kyle Rudolph. But other than those guys, there's nothing there. So as much as this to me felt like a game that the Cowboys might drop or maybe it's a three-point win, because Minnesota needs it more. They're at home. I can't. I just can't do it. I, I look at the Cowboys, and I think if they're going to drop a game, this isn't going to be it. And the four points, to me, doesn't worry me all that much because the Cowboys score a lot. Their offense is so potent. Their offensive line is by far the best in football. They don't make mistakes. The weapons just outnumber the defenders that the Vikings have. You you can't stop Elliott with four guys in the box, and you can't stop Bryant, Witten, and Beasley without, you know, dropping help from the linebackers. So there's no way to accomplish both of those things, and I think as the game wears on, Ezekiel Elliott will get stronger. Cowboys will move the ball even better. Um, Take the Cowboys minus four in Minnesota on Thursday night. The Dallas Cowboys are Thursday's top dog. All right, everybody, that was the show for tonight. That's the sports section. Thank you all for listening. Appreciate everyone taking their time to listen to us on Blog Talk Radio or the podcast on iTunes or wherever and however you may listen to us. Uh, Make sure that you follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Mr. Cowboy Mike. That's at Mr. Cowboy Mike. On Facebook, you can find us at The Cowboy Rides Again. Uh, Follow the blog. Uh, the blog is thecowboyridesagain.com. It's updated all the time with interesting stories and in sports, um, crime, law, culture, news, everything that I find interesting that I come across, we put on there and put our take on it. Um, make sure you like, share, subscribe, subscribe, follow, all those good things. Um, and tune in on Saturday night for another episode of the Cowboy Rides Again podcast. We'll be discussing some of the top stories uh, from Championship Saturday. We'll get into a little bit of guilty or not guilty. It'll be a fun show for everybody. And we'll be back here again on Tuesday with another episode of the sports section. So thank you all for listening. Make sure you like, share, subscribe, and follow. And everybody, have a great night.
Hey, 